It was sort of just two figures. One was reading a, a history book to the other, and they just finished getting to the Enlightenment. And the other figure's like, wow, so what happened when, you know, mankind embraced reason and discarded, you know, their superstitions and myths? And then the reader's like, well, genocide mostly. <laughs> Welcome to We Talk About Dead People in Exile. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm not here with my good friend and co-host, James D., because he's too busy honeymooning with his brand new wife. And while that sucks for us, it's not going to suck for everybody or all the time or, you know, uh, particularly too much because we have a special guest today. And it's going to be wonderful, and we're going to get to him in just a second. But first, I have to do some little uh, business cleanup and shit like that. Sorry, everybody, but this is the way a podcast works. We actually have a new patron. That's right. We have a new patron! And that makes me very happy because patrons are literally the lifeblood of the show. They help us deal with all kinds of shit uh, that comes up, and you never know what's going to come up. That is the that is the sad thing about podcasting. So I just want to say uh, thank you to our patron, Antoinette, for wine. Yes, you have given generously, and we thank you for it. I'm not sure how you found us, but we would like to know so we can do more of that shit so more people can find us. Anyway, thank you very much. Welcome to the club, and don't forget to pick up your We Talk About Dead People mug on teespring.com or something like that. Anyway, so, guys, today we're going to be talking about something really interesting, something that's really near and dear to my heart, uh, and it does cross over to history, I promise, but today we're going to be discussing myth and how it relates to history, because it turns out the further back you go in history, the more mythological things get. You start seeing things like, you know, people who probably definitely existed, but are also recorded as doing some really impossible shit, which, I mean, that's kind of half the fun of old-fashioned history. You can't trust any of the sources, and anybody you cite's gonna, somebody's gonna shit all over you for citing them and say, hey, you should have cited this guy. But, you know what? That's just the name of the game. So today we're actually going to be talking about myth as a whole, and what it does culturally, uh, and how it relates to history in a very broad sense. I suspect this conversation's gonna go all over the place, because this is something I've been thinking about a lot recently. And I expect it to be a lot of fun. But to uh, aid me in my discussion so I don't just ramble forever, we've got a guest who goes by George. By George! Say hello, George. Am I being detained? What? Oh, sorry, podcast, right? (laughs) (laughs) Hello, everybody. I'm George. Yes. Or am I? (laughs) Wouldn't you like to know? Yeah, and you don't know. It's he, he goes by George. You know, James isn't James's real name. Aaron's not my real name. Isn't that funny? Isn't that funny, George? <laughs> eh, four out of ten. No, the four out of ten. <laughs> yeah, I'm not that funny without James around. I can't do it. Damn it. He is my lifeblood. Besides our patrons, of course, they are more so our lifeblood than James. James can go fuck himself. <laughs> uh, which is what he's probably doing on his honeymoon. Uh... Don't ask why. <laughs> I was anyway. going to say, I feel like that defeats the point. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. A little bit. Unless, of course, unless, of course, well, not going to go there. Okay, so. <clears throat> the weather's been nice, hasn't it? Yeah, well, I live in Texas and you live where again? Wouldn't you like to know? <laughs> Being very secretive, aren't you, George? Well, what can I say? The dean is still hunting me after I crashed the department budget on coffee and Skittles last year. <laughs> You know, I actually totally believe that could have happened. If they gave you a budget, 
you, they'd look at it at the end of the year. They'd be like, what the fuck were you eating? Skittles. <laughs> Skittles. Fucking Skittles, dude. Coffee. The occasional Sheets burrito. Mm-hmm. Once Wait, in a what? while, a new DLC for Dark Souls. Sheets burrito? Oh, I forgot you're a heathen. Uh, Sheets is a northeastern uh, gas station and food chain, and they're open 24 hours a day, and you can get a appetizing and delicious burrito there anytime you want. It's a gas station? Yes. But oh, for, God. But you know, for if like you came to Austin... 739, you can get, like, a pound of food. It's like a big-ass burrito, I'm telling you. And well, you you know how arrogant Texans get about their tacos these days, especially in Austin. Ah, uh, yes, our dear, dear friends with their salmon, patchouli, herbal, <laughs> whatever the fuck tacos. Yeah, you know, it's kind of hard to actually find tacos that aren't whacked out here. That kind of makes me sad, because sometimes I just have to go to Taco Bell to get a normal taco. Keep it's Austin like, weird, man. Yeah, keep Austin weird. Well, Sheets is something I've never heard of, but there was one that I heard of out on the East Coast that I I can't even believe fucking exists. Have you ever heard of Wawa? Oh, have I ever. Wawa is a uh, more of an Eastern Pennsylvania and New Jersey thing especially, but they are really the first ones who actually came up with this whole idea of a sort of made-to-order food station combined with a gas station, but... Like in the case of Akhenaten inventing monotheism, just because you did it first doesn't mean you did it best. Because Sheets well, does it best. <laughs> I'm just going to have to take your word for it until I can get some Sheets. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, first of all, I want to maybe sort of outline the, the precarious situation we're in regarding the show. We don't know what the hell James is up to right now. We assume he's honeymooning, but you never know with the guy. I mean, he's probably robbing a Burger King and not for their money, if you know what I mean. I mean, honestly, I haven't heard from him, like, consistently, which is fine, because he's on his honeymoon, but I haven't heard him consistent from him consistently at all recently. I'll get, like, this random text. How's it going? And I'll respond, and then I'll get nothing back. <laughs> Which is awkward. This reminds also, me of literally everyone I knew in college. Yeah, actually, that, that, is, that is very true. And when they get married, it's a completely different thing. But I was going to say, uh, also, I had to go buy a mic to record this episode, because at, like the dumbass I am, I'm pretty sure, I'm not for sure, but I'm pretty sure I drove all the way back to Austin from Chicago and left my mic in the frozen north. God damn it. I know. It's horse shit. I had to go and drop another 140 bucks in a Yeti blackout. I mean, joke's on them. I'm going to return it tomorrow. But, <laughs> <laughs> I don't uh, know what your I'm, deal is. I'm a scumbag. Uh, yeah. I'm, also, but anyway. speaking of mics, if you hear a rumbling sound behind me, be still my beating heart. The apocalypse is not yet upon us, but I do live next to a set of train tracks on which glorious American steel cars carry the black and fiery fruit of the earth to the great furnaces. <laughs> by which I mean like coal trains pass by frequently, particularly between the hours of midnight and 3 a.m., which, fortunately for me, that's prime time. But there may be some rumbling, so do not be alarmed, gentle listener. Yes, uh, thank you for that warning. 
George, I want to say one other thing too is that like this is this is a casual chat. You might actually get to hear Sad Dog tonight. Have you heard about Sad Dog? George? I haven't heard about Sad Dog. Okay, I live above this this emo ass dog that like <laughs> about this time every night just starts wailing into the night and for the life of me, I don't know why. I never hear the owners trying to soothe it. I just hear the dog screaming. Is he in grad school? Because <laughs> Lord knows that's what I do every night. They'll put anyone through grad school these days, won't they? <laughs> Except for people who earned it. <laughs> okay, God. I don't know if I want to go there. Uh, okay, so <clears throat> I want to I want to bring this in because this we really do have some serious shit to talk about. All right. Oh, I've heard uh, that from a lot of girlfriends. Yeah, <laughs> and that's always a bad sign. I was if gonna only say, it was a lot. <laughs> yeah, if, if only. <laughs> that works on multiple levels. Well done. <laughs> All right, so I, I want to ask you, because I've been trying to sort of wrap my brain around it, and maybe I'll preface this by saying just a couple of words on my exposure to myths uh, throughout my life, just so we have some sort of context as to where I'm coming at this from, and maybe where you're coming at this from as well. Because, okay, so <clears throat> I was I was raised on uh, biblical myths, uh, stories of old, which may or may not be true, but nonetheless seem to have significance for a lot of people. Um, and I went through a phase where I thought myth was uh, just myth was synonymous with lie, uh, made up story, all that kind of shit. And then I started really looking into it, studying it in college, and realized that there's actually more to myth than I thought. And one of the things that I, I came out of studying myth saying was that myth isn't necessarily true, but it's something like more than true. Because it seemed to capture the human experience in a way, and the human experience is such a lazy way to put it, but it seemed to capture something about uh, being a person and a, uh, let's see, and it seemed to give something more like a, it sort of gave more of a cultural context than it did necessarily a, a historical context. And I found that I couldn't throw it out because of that. And these days, I think myth gets a bad rap because, again, lots of people think synonymous with lie. Um, so maybe we just break this down right away by just asking the simple question, just what is a myth? Wow, we're getting getting right into it. So I take a very, very broad view of myth in that... A lot of things are myths that you might not immediately think of as myth. For example, and here I must add the very important caveat that just like a myth isn't necessarily true, a myth isn't necessarily false either. And so with that said, religion is a type of myth. Um, cultural origin stories are a type of myth. Um, really, any sort of narrative which has a universal cogency within a particular community of course like you know there's not sort of a overarching human myth but individual cultures at specific times have their mythic patrimony so it's a narrative that has a cogency that everyone in the culture understands what it means what it's about and it in some way provides a outline or a set of guidance for wending our way through reality and dealing with the situations which we come upon. So it's, I take it, as I said, I take a very broad view of it. It is any sort of universally acknowledged cultural narrative that provides example, guidance, rules, or mm. some other thing that helps us navigate reality. 
So that can okay, be anything so- from yeah religion to on you know just fairy tales stories like George Washington and the Cherry Tree. Those are all myths. Mm. Yeah, I, I really I really resonate with that definition because it it offers more of a I, I would say an attractively pragmatic description. You know what I mean? Like because a lot of people and I say this very generally speaking and but I include myself in this is that myth is like you go to the museum and you look at these um you know these displays of different cult- like I was at the Milwaukee Museum over the Christmas break right and I went in there and we looked walked through all these displays of different cultures indigenous tribes that sort of thing and they all had these myths and they included like uh, ceremonial garb ritualistic practices you know there were little models of like what a what a uh, display might look like the meaning of masks and all that shit. I really enjoyed learning about it um, because when you apply it as, as oh, this is just a stupid thing that these people believed, well, you're missing almost the entire story. Like some of the, some of the dressings of it might seem foolish or primitive to us, but when you read, say, the anthropological uh, analysis or even the psychological analysis of what these myths actually mean, uh, you get something much, much deeper and it's a little bit. It's a little bit. Uh, it's a well. I should just say it's a lot of fun to find myths you're not familiar with and connect the dots between them culturally. No, absolutely. Because I, for one, firmly believe that myth is an inescapable part of the human resist of the human um, experience. You can't get away from it. You can't have a society that doesn't have myths. You know, I'm sure many people of our own age would sort of boast about how we've moved beyond that. We've moved beyond our ancestral superstitions and our childish myths that we believed. And now we're, you know, existing in this pure, unadulterated light of reason. But frankly, that's horseshit. All you have to do (laughs) is go to a protest and just wait until you see a sign that references Harry Potter. (laughs) Why? Because people generally speaking, understand what is conveyed by a reference to that narrative that more or less everybody knows. Yeah. It's a, well, it's a myth. I, it's not necessarily yeah, well, a good myth. could be a shitty myth, in- but it's a myth. It's, <laughs> it's interesting, though, because uh, the, the Harry Potter thing really sticks with me because um, you see so many people who, who freaking love it, and it doesn't even matter what end of the political spectrum they're on, and I hate talking politics, you know this, but it doesn't really matter um, what end of the political spectrum you're on, a lot of people use these uh, mythological characters to describe people they don't like or people that they do like. I mean, it's it's sort of like saying, you know, this guy is standing up to, to all the evil in the world. And sometimes they'll say, he's like Harry Potter standing up to Voldemort. Well, that's just another way of communicating something like a hero, uh, a hero's duty or a hero's journey. Uh, and it's it's sort of, it's almost like linguistic... Uh, shortcuts that we take, but they're not exactly shortcuts because that makes it sounds like sound like you're leaving something out. Characters themselves embody uh, certain values and the actions they take on the page, on the screen, or in the narrative, uh, in the spoken word, or something like that, actually teaches us a lot about um, about the human experience, etc. Uh, that you can't get through just mere. Um, mere facts right you know what i mean it contains emotional information as well no exactly in a sense it's actually a um a form of 
enthymeme, which sadly is not a dank new kind of meme them kids are coming up with, but is in <laughs> fact a uh, rhetorical device, which is discussed at length by Aristotle. An enthymeme is a argument that has its premises unstated because the premises are going to be acknowledged within whatever brief statement you make. So, for, for example, um, when you say that all humans... Sorry, market. The idea is that you don't have to completely fill out the argument. So, the argument for individual X is evil... Voldemort is evil, therefore individual X is like Voldemort. You don't have to go out through all these steps. You just say individual X is like Voldemort, and the other steps are already understood in there. Ah, is it because he has impeccable taste and nostrils? No, it's probably because <laughs> he's evil, because that's what we associate with the the cultural narrative of Voldemort. So that's what an enthymeme is. It's a way to convey multiple steps of an argument or of a um, statement in one sort of condensed form. And that's something yeah. that myth allows us to do. When we compare some, you know, someone to a mythological motif or character, it allows us to express a lot more than if we simply were sort of listing off the attributes. So, you know, when we compare Julius Caesar to the god Mars, we're saying a lot about his prowess in war, his, you know, grandeur, whatever, all these things. Mm-hmm. It's better than simply saying, yeah, he's, he's a pretty good general. It conveys more information than just a description. Well, certainly, because, you know, you go back and you read accounts of ancient generals and that sort of thing, and it's really fucking boring. It's like, then they fought this battle, and then they fought this battle, and then they did this thing. And even oh man, back you're, then, this is it, it, this year. It's like you're talking dirty to me. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, I'm a historian. <laughs> well, I was gonna say it's like it's boring, but hey, you know, for us because it's 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 distant. Um, but I was gonna say even back then, if you know, to relay information about say the victory in a battle, if you say you know, you know, this general went out and fought like you know the war god fill in the blank, and it was and. You know, the sun went down on the battle, and it came up again the next day, and then it went down again. It's like, did it really occur that way? Mm, we really don't know. But what does it tell you to have those symbolic, the symbolic uh, image imagery of the sun dropping and then rising and then dropping again? It's like, they fought for a really long fucking time. Maybe nobody had a little stopwatch, so we don't know exactly how long. But we're conveying the emotional and even uh, metaphorical information that this battle felt like forever, or something like that. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay. Um, yeah, so I think in that context, when you have something like uh, myth being just kind of thrown aside, uh, you know, which is so easy to do. It, you go and, I mean, like I said, you go to that museum, you look at the, the masks and the costumes, and you can take pictures and make fun of them and say, ah, ha, ha, it looks so silly. But it really did mean something to people back then. And you have to ask yourself what it was. Because it, you know you contain these these rituals contain so much more cultural information, so much more uh, implicit information than just the facts. It's like you know a, 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 a celebration of death or a funeral or a death god or goddess or something like that. I mean that contains all the information you really need to have about what it is to be a human facing death, as opposed to just yep this tribe lived and they died and they practiced such and such and that was it. 
It's like if you go and examine their mythological structures, you learn a lot about what it was like, what it felt like to be there. Does that... Am I tracking? I feel like I'm ranting like a crazy person. I thought that's what your podcast was for. Well, I mean, I know that. <laughs> Sometimes I like to make a little sense. You know what I mean? Um, it's okay. James isn't here. Everybody will cut you some slack. Yeah, it's, without James here, I, I'm basically just... I'm fucked. That's it. Uh, the dog okay, so, that wails in the night is actually Aaron. <laughs> I'm just here alone with sad dog. God help me. Okay, so <clears throat> I guess that brings me to my, my next... Quite, I wrote a list of questions for you. I'm not going to stick to it uh, religiously. Ha ha. Um, but I am going to like work through these a little bit because I think they can bring out a lot of good discussion. Um, but first, I want to pause real quick and mention a book that I've been reading about myth, myth and myth across culture, and the uniformities between different. Oh, kinds the of train is a coming. Yep, the better get ready. Trade is a coming. Oh shit! You mean the actual train? <laughs> yes, I mean the actual train. Well, the plane's coming on my side. I don't know if you can hear a single prop plane outside the window, but the guy's flying low. He's probably dropping poison or something. This is the Red Baron out there. Yeah. <laughs> well, this book I've been working through, I've actually been working through with a couple of my family members, uh, and I've been recommending it to fucking everybody who will listen. Uh, it's called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And it's ah, by Joseph an Campbell. Joseph Campbell. My man. Yeah. So have you read this book? I haven't. I have. So, I mean, I don't know how long ago it's been. How long ago did you read the book? Oh, gosh. must have been four years, I think, now. Do you remember anything? Do you remember having an impression about it? I remember finding it a very, very compelling argument. I remember thinking at times it could perhaps be accused of oversimplification in its effort Mm. to sort of establish these uh, sort of primal myths that are universally uh, found throughout different cultures. As a pretty thoroughgoing historicist i do sometimes question those sort of impulses to universalize among humanity but i overall found the methodology quite interesting and the argument compelling so on the whole give it a thumbs up well it's very jungian you know and you could have different you could have different point of view on jung i I don't think everybody agrees i mean if i were to say everybody agrees that jung was right i think we'd get a lot of people you know burning down my house well as the as the proud yeah. recipient of frequent emails asking me to enroll in a PhD program for union archetypes at some place I've never heard of in California, I'm very interested to see where this is going to go. Yeah, well, I'll admit I haven't gotten all the way through the book, but it is, it is, it is a, like you said, it's a compelling argument, and it's a very good distillation of a lot of different myths. And as long as you can, I mean, because it is a very, very assertive book, um, which. I like. I love books that know what they're about and that say what they're trying to say with no bullshit in between. Because that you can at least tangle with. You know, it's not like this, it might mean this. It's like, it means this, fuckers! And that's it, right? I'm good with that. Because I can I, I can disagree, or I can agree, you know? Uh, and then the argument comes up later. But anyway, so this book is all about uh, largely the hero's journey, which is something I learned about in, in film school uh, in a very, very very basic way and not not by coincidence there's a quote on the back by George Lucas of course the creator of Star Wars uh, and he says uh, he says the following I don't know if I can do a George Lucas voice uh, but I will try 
Uh, God, what does he sound like? He sounds so sleepy all the time, right? I'm sorry, what? <laughs> okay, I'm just gonna fucking read it. Alright, here we go. So, <clears throat> this is George Lucas. In the three decades since I discovered the hero with a thousand faces, it has continued to fascinate and inspire me. Joseph Campbell peers through centuries and shows us that we are all connected by a basic need to hear stories and understand ourselves. As a book, it is wonderful to read as illumination into the human condition. It is a revelation. Very strong words by George Lucas, I will say. Uh, but I wanted to, I wanted to point that out because uh, the the structure that uh, jo Joseph Campbell uh, proposes throughout his book is almost to a T Star Wars, like the original Star Wars movie. Uh, I don't think that's a fucking coincidence, do you? No, no, absolutely not. It was, it's a very, very clear influence. And yeah, you know, like Campbell or not, no one can deny that his arguments and the especially the things which he identifies do have a lot of cogency in mm. just looking at not only ancient but modern stories as well mm. well that actually reminds me uh I, I took lots of classes on story structure and uh nothing frustrates me more than seeing people sort of like piss all over it as if it means nothing uh i was listening to a lecture by sarah jane murray who is actually a professor of mine um at a certain point, she gave a great class on story. She has a TED Talk that I recommend to everybody. It is not going to disappoint. And she's very charismatic, so she's not hard to listen to at all. But she makes the argument that we need stories, and I love that because there's nothing... I don't think there's anything truer or more motivational than a well-told story. Uh, story itself is one of the most powerful things we have, and as a result, it has lasted forever. And it's not something you could just kind of get rid of or reshape because uh, one of the rants I like to go on, and I, w I will go on this fucking rant, I don't know if I'm going to do it now, but one of the rants I like to go on is that stories properly understood are reflections of psychology and even, um, even uh, sub-level psychological uh, processes and that sort of thing. And story itself is a little bit like a science, um, because a, a good story structure, a prop story structure properly, uh, properly organized, sort of matches elements of the human experience that you can't really mat like find anywhere else in you know in fact you can't find it in you know knowing things you can only know it by instinct so a story structure properly done sort of it's 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 sort of the universal language um, you know you can swap out the symbols you can change out the faces you can you know change all the actors or put better effects on the screen it doesn't fucking matter if you have a story that's organized according to this sort of almost secret structure, you're going to get people engaged, and I think there's a reason for that. But I've been talking a lot. Do you have anything? No, no, no. I would say, yeah, that's that's absolutely true. And as I said, as I said earlier, my tendencies tend to be very historicist in that I think most human phenomena are best studied and understood within their exact historical and cultural context and not as sort of, not in the first place anyway, as sort of univ universal human things manifested in this culture. However, it, that's not the full picture because, yes, there are things that are universal. They just, they're not going to be the same shape. They're not even necessarily going to be the same function. The way I like to think of it is kind of like a house. A house has a roof. That's universal. 
That's yes. like an element of good storytelling. A house has a roof. But depending on where in the world we're talking about, that roof might be designed to do different things. In some parts of the world, it might be designed specifically for keeping out mostly just sunlight and providing mm. shade. Other parts, it's going to ha- it's going to be designed to hold up the weight of a lot of snow and provide insulation. You know, in mm. other parts of the world, it's going to specifically need to be waterproof. So it's like, yes, all the houses are going to have roofs. Mm. So there's your universal human thing. But in every culture, that roof is going to look different, be built differently, and serve a different purpose because mm. the needs are different. And that's your individual historicized context. So that's how I like to think about storytelling. I think, yes, there are these human universal things, and it is good to acknowledge them. But I think first you want to figure out exactly what their historical and cultural context is. And we can figure out, okay, this structure that spans over us what's it do well it seems to be designed to hold up a lot of snow and prevent it from you know falling into the house oh it's a type of roof excellent so i like to move sort of from the specific cultural and historical context of a story and then try to see what function it plays that can be equated with other functions in other cultures so here's a good question uh if you're, if, I mean, I, I think I agree with you. Uh, the universal, I think, is a, is maybe a good starting point for some, but the spe- the specific function of, say, the roof of the house, um, and the specific function of individual stories, they're all very different. I mean, not all stories function the same way, but they do share elements of structure that are required to actually be stories. I mean, you can you can make a movie about it. I mean, you can fucking become a you know French New Wave filmmaker and just you know film a person walking around Paris for four hours and call that a movie, but it's still not a story. Um, and <clears throat> as far as like different functions for different regions and different cultures and that sort of thing, that makes perfect sense because say you have uh, an island folk or something like that. Well, their stories are going to be sort of probably very much related to living on the island, what's beyond the great sea, that sort of thing. As opposed to someone that's more landlocked, their stories are probably going to be a little bit, a little bit different. Um, am I wrong about that? No, no, I think you're 100 percent right. And I think that okay. we have a tendency, and by we, I'm referring to sort of our age, has a tendency to want to not pay proper attention to the individual and to sort of launch right into trying to interpret things strictly universally, in which case you often fail to actually understand sort of its meaning. Because, you know, you might look back on an ancient god who ensures that agreements are held and, you know, bargains are carried out justly and whatnot, and we'll say, wow, well, that's stupid that they believed in that. But then we have our own gods. You know, we have a myth of you know, for example, equality that we view as a sort of super personal force that we're supposed to abide by and mm. let it guide our actions in the exact same way as a deity who enforces a certain social action in an older culture would have done. So because we don't necessarily look and see, okay, what does this myth do in society? We just try to look at it from a perspective that's universal rather than of its particular role in society, we often, I think, fail to even appreciate 
what it does in society, because if we did that, we would then find many cases that we have myths that do the exact same thing. And that's just hmm. sort of our, uh, our, our temporal prejudice against those who came before us. Because that universalizing well, tendency you see all the time, like in sayings like, um, like the one which was written on the front cover of a book that was signed to me by uh, by Steve Forbes. Actually, he wrote "Human Nature Never Changes." It was a it was a book he wrote about uh, great leaders throughout history, and I just had to laugh because it's so indicative of the sort of modern perspective that tries to view everything as just human, as if we can be just human and exist free from a cultural and historical context. Hmm. I see. I, I think that's really interesting uh, because I think I, what you're saying, uh, you know, I swear to God, I'm not virtue signaling right now, but like what you said about equality being something like a deity, like it doesn't matter if you think it should be or not. Culturally speaking, it kind of is. It's a it's a uh, it is a it's a cultural virtue that we've adopted for one reason or another, and you can argue about it all you want. But the point I think is that it is the selected thing today, at least one of them. Is that right? Yeah, no, no. I think you're absolutely on the mark there. Right, because I, I think I think it's it's so oh it's so fucking easy to get lost in the weeds when you start talking about things like uh well things like equality. People want to talk about whether or not it's a good thing, but if you're wanting to talk about what it actually is uh, and what it actually means to a culture, that's a completely different discussion. And I got I got a, I had a conversation with a with a friend of mine today about this this exact thing. We were like, why can't we talk about ideas without making it about politics? And we were both so frustrated. And he's like, he's like, he's way older than me. He has a completely different lifestyle, completely different uh, understanding of the world. But it was like, we both agreed that we're like, okay, there's this bullshit thing that's going on today where you can't talk about anything without talking about politics. Well, I think that's wrong. I think it's, I think, I think feeling like you have to talk politics to talk about ideas is one of the most constraining bullshit ideas we have these days. Uh, and I think that's that's definitely part of why I don't get talk politics on the show. I try to keep things strictly to ideas and strictly to uh, principles and philosophy and that sort of thing. I like to keep it on a lower or even higher level than that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't. Th and I wonder if politics has something to do with this myth making crap. You know, because it's like you said earlier. You know, uh, Julius Caesar was compared to Mars. Well, it's like. Who do we compare to who these days? I mean, who's the who's the big evil guy that we use to compare uh, our our most hated enemies to all the time? And we I have no idea I'm where this is. We going. both know who I'm talking about, and I'm not going to say it except that he's going to appear on the last episode of the show. <laughs> um, you know, that's that is a whether you believe it or not, that is what could be equated to something like a mythological structure. It's like Voldemort in a lot of ways, right? And it's like, you know, I everyone who listens to the show know, knows I had like a major revelation on like, well, revelation. More like I, I actually started to think about, you know, totalitarian societies like Mao's and, and Stalin's. And even though we haven't talked about Stalin yet, but we talked about Trotsky. And we talked about all that shit. And those guys are so, they're bigger than, larger than life, you know? Like, they they inhibit they inhabit so much of the of the uh, cultural space of the of the mythological space and all that all that good stuff that they're not just guys anymore they're not just men they're something 
there's something greater than that. And whether it's a hero or a villain, that's that's up to you. It depends on whether or not you wear Mao T-shirts to, to Radio Coffee here <laughs> in Austin, Texas, <laughs> right? Like, your opinion can be different about that. But what we're talking about is what actually is a mythological figure. So I'm done talking, and I'm sure you have more to say. Yeah, no, or exactly. And <laughs> thinking about someone, you know, more recent like Stalin, you know, it's absolutely true that myths – are bo- perpetually born and are perpetually dying, rising, falling, waning, waxing, and so on. And that's a natural part of sort of, in an apolitical sense, progress. You know, mm. these things naturally happen. Myths aren't imminent and permanent. They don't just stay there forever the exact same way. They do change. They die. They come. They go. And... Thinking back to Caesar, you know, Julius Caesar very much sought to set himself up in this mythic framework with his, um, you know, being descended from Venus and whatnot. And he sought to set himself up as a mythological figure. And then later on, you know, Caesar himself is becomes a sort of mythological figure that later emperors sort of try to set themselves in the mold of. So, you know, these these things do happen and change. But I think what when it gets really, really dicey is when it's that's not an organic process and when people actively set about changing and discarding and building myths. That's mm. usually when it hits the fan. Um, yeah. And it kind of reminds me of this great little comic strip I saw a couple years ago. I don't remember um, what site it was on, so I can't credit it, unfortunately. But it was sort of just two figures. One was reading a, a history book to the other, and they just finished getting to the Enlightenment. And the other figure's like, wow, so what happened when, you know, mankind embraced reason and discarded, you know, their superstitions and myths? And then the reader's like, well, genocide, mostly. Because <laughs> <laughs> myths what? provide the framework that allows humanity to function in a harmonious way because it allows a mediation between ideal and reality because when you Mm. just have sort of a abstract set of principles this right this wrong this good this bad and your own actions there's no room for that to be tempered at all Mm. it's okay this is in opposition to what i'm wanting this is not a good good thing by my worldview exterminate there's no room to sort of negotiate it but when you have a mythic framework a mythic framework that includes representations of these sort of cosmic impersonal or personal forces of good and evil you are able to sort of ameliorate your desire to immediately start trying to conform reality to your Mm -hmm. ideals because these stories allow you to sort of work through conflict in a way that when you don't have them, it's okay. This is opposed to the ideals I want to have. It is going to be taken out of existence. And and you become like a, a fucking nihilist a lot of the time. It, one of the interesting things that I read continuously uh, throughout like the 20th century shit we've been talking about on the show a lot, uh, and even before, is that people like Mao and and even Joseph Goebbels figured out that this that myth was not only a well Mao wanted to get rid of it altogether right he wanted to get rid of of all the religious structures and that sort of thing he burned down however many thousands of temples or whatever um you know he realized that the first level which is that well myth can go 
But then he realized the second level, which was myth actually is here to stay, always. And so did uh, so did the communists in Russia as well, which is why I know I've mentioned it to you, and I don't even remember if I mentioned this on the show, but the, the Soviets had a God-building program. Have you ever read about that? I haven't, actually. I'm, okay. I remember you mentioning it, but I'm eager to know more. They, there was literally a task force set out to figure out how to build a god for the Soviet Union. Oh, it probably had all that, sorts of great adjectives in its name, too, that told you absolutely nothing about what it actually did. <laughs> I remember once I was scrolling around on the, univers- on the website of the University of Vladivostok. Long story. Um, but I came across a division of the university referred to as the Institute of Highly Qualified Specialists. <laughs> I read their whole website. No idea what it was for or what it did, but goddamn, if I wouldn't want to be part of something called the Institute of Highly Qualified Specialists. Uh, can I get in? Can I please get in? <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, okay, so here, here's another one that I that I liked. I came across this when I was reading about Joseph Goebbels, and you, know, you of course, know this story because you know history. Um, the Horst Vessel lead, right? Sorry, that was, was my that? espresso machine shutting off. Oh, good. Ignore the espresso machine behind the nine o'clock at night. Uh, I was going to say, like the horse vessel lead. The horse vessel lead is a great example of creating a sort of mythical figure um, out of somebody who was real, right? I mean, you know the story, but I'll I'll repeat it. Well, and you got to correct me if I fuck anything up. I haven't read about it in a while, but basically, there was this guy named Horse Vessel who was combating communists in Germany. Uh, around the time of the rise of the Third Reich, and he ended up getting killed by these communists. And yeah, he was actually. Yeah, he was. He was murdered in his home. He wasn't killed in sort of combat. He was actually, uh, yeah, shot when he opened his door. That's right. Yeah, that's right. They 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 uh, they knocked on the door. He opened it up, and he they shot him. Right. Yeah. And I think Goebbels said he was there personally with him, and. It's it's contested, and I only say it's contested because that's what it says um, on Wikipedia. But it's contested uh, that you know he died saying something like, "Well, I'm sure you probably know it better than me." But like, it contested saying something like, "You know, don't let this stop the rise" or something like that. It, it was something very revolutionary. Um, yeah, I don't remember. I don't remember the exact words, but yeah, something yeah, it was of that. it was something very dreamy, something very related to the cause. You know, it reads like something that somebody made up uh and i and i don't mean it like it was definitely made up don't get me wrong i'm saying it, it reads like it's it's almost too good to be true um either yeah, it, way it could have been made up it could have actually happened but once you start sort of encoding it into a myth it doesn't matter anymore that's exactly right and i think that's what Goebbels figured out he was like well uh, how can i make the most use of this and i i don't think he was i mean yeah, it was, it was like, how can I get the most power out of this story? And having just a line in there about, about um, you know, don't let the revolution die, something like that, you know, turns Horse Vessel into not only, like, a mascot, but a myth. Like, this is the symbol of the German soldier fighting for, or not the German soldier, but the Nazi party fighting against the communists, that sort of thing. Am I right about that or am I wrong? I mean, because you got to challenge me on this shit if I'm wrong. Oh, no, trust me, I will. No, no, I think, yeah, no, I think that's that's absolutely right, because especially if you think of what's going on in Germany, it's a time of immense chaos and an immense lack of unifying myths in society, because, you know, with the end of the monarchy, the the breakup of the German Empire, people are needing 
new myths because myths are very much tied to culture and culture is very much intertwined with the politics by which that culture is governed and the land which that culture inhabits and all that. And so whenever you have a major transformation, you're going to have suddenly an absence of appropriate myths because mm. myths are tied to, you know, ancient kingship and ancient, tri you know, ancestral land and all, and all those sorts of things. And so whenever one of those factors is suddenly transformed as all those factors suddenly were transformed after World War One, and you had the monarchy was gone, bunch of Germany's pre previous uh, territory was gone, um, there was no sort of political unity, there was no social unity. Suddenly the old myths are more or less put in an early grave because they are no longer actually representative of the social reality. And so people need myths and people are going to have myths one way or another. And so if you can kind of and I hear I'm going to sound like I'm, you know, pitching you some kind of uh, weird multi-level marketing scam to sell oils. <laughs> if you get in on the ground floor when people are looking for myths, you can often have your myth sort of become encoded into that social fabric. Yes. It's like a blank slate. Yeah. I mean, and that reminds me, of course, like we were talking briefly earlier about American myths and how, like, you know, Benjamin Franklin with the myth you know, of the kite and the lightning bolt and catching it, you know, and all that shit. Um, you know, was it George Washington, the cherry tree, honest Abe delivering three cents over nine miles or something like that? You know, like his honesty was so great that he delivered three cents to a person over nine miles because they gave him too much money or something like that. Um, like those are, those are, I mean, those stories may have, ha I mean, and this is the fucking hilarious thing to me about it. Okay. You go read about those stories on Wikipedia and there, and it's always like some, some snotty historian going, this probably didn't happen. And you're like, you don't fucking know it didn't happen. <laughs> you weren't there. And but what I, difference I, does it make anyway? It really doesn't because once it's out into the culture and once people start to believe it and take hold of it and once the narrative is going and clicking along, it's like, oh shit, Abraham Lincoln's the most honest man on the planet. You know? It served its function. And that's, that's sort of the crossover between historical fact and mythological fiction. Um, it's, yeah, no, it's, and I, I, I'm glad you sort of brought us back to the, the early American context because they were very, very aware of the power of myths and the power of uh, sort of types of enthymemes like we talked about earlier. So, for example, the, the statue of George Washington in D.C., which is modeled after Cincinnatus, the uh, ancient Roman of legend um, who was given the dictatorship because he was recognized as a man of great integrity and skill in order to avert this, uh, this national crisis of war. And then as soon as he did that, he gave it all up and didn't try to keep power and went back to his farm and just lived his humble, farming, quiet life again. And so the fact that they chose imagery like that, the fact that we have imagery like that in our own American mythos is just a testament to the importance of myth because you can depict George Washington as he looks, you know, as a 18th century American statesman. It's like, okay, that's George Washington. Or you can depict George Washington as Cincinnatus and you've given a whole new world of meaning to your depiction and meaning that doesn't have to be spelled out. It's implicit. Yeah, myths, myths are implicit in everything, more or less. Yeah. 
And and that's another interesting thing is I was having this discussion with somebody recently about uh, metaphor and language. Um, and, you know, my thought was, hey, it seems like most language is metaphorical on some level. Uh, I don't know if it's the same way with myth in that, like, you say... Well, it doesn't it doesn't do any good to say, you know, Abraham Lincoln was very honest. Like, okay, fine. That may be true, that may not be true. But you say, you know, he walked nine miles to deliver three cents. Like, that communicates a hell of a lot more than just saying he was very honest, right? And it communicates things narratively, which I think you'll agree is generally the most effective way of communicating ideas to people. People are natural sort of storytellers and story listeners and when you can encode a meaning in a story generally it's more eagerly more widely and more deeply received than if you just make a statement it's like our american you know myth abe lincoln was an honest man it's like oh yeah i'm gonna put that on a bumper sticker like (laughs) that's boring but when you like have you know abe lincoln you know walked nine miles to return three cents or you just or even you can just honest abe just that epithet there conveys that sort of whole background of these stories which assuming people know the stories which is that it's an important part of myth is that it has to have a sort of cult uh, universal cogency within a particular culture if people know the stories just that epithet of honest abe evokes all those stories and it does so much more than just saying abe is honest yep yeah it really it really does and um, oh man, I had something I wanted to say to that. You really tapped onto something that was really nice there. Mm. <laughs> Would you mind if we uh, took a little break here? I need to get some more coffee. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Let's just uh, we'll just leave the thing running, and you can get your coffee, and then whenever you're ready, come back, and we'll keep going. This is really cool. Okay, fantastic. So yeah, whatever, whatever the hell the time is, I guess. Mark it. I know you don't care. <laughs> well, I meant time of day. You. <laughs> <laughs> I exist outside of time. Well, while we're on break here, I'll just take this moment to thank our listeners for sticking with us through James's horrible, horrible wedding. Uh, Nobody has any business marrying him. (laughs) He has no business marrying anyone else. Uh, He'll probably listen to this. I'm hoping he does. So, if you're out there, James, we miss you. We all do. You're a wonderful person, and... We miss your screaming and your random jokes that make no sense. Miss the Doppler effect, all that good stuff. And I think that's me and the entire podcast community saying that. So, for what it's worth, James, we miss you. And that's that. Mm -hmm. Basically, space aliens. (laughs) I'm going to get you to do your Alex Jones impression before this is all over. (laughs) <laughs> works for me. I mean, works he's me. here in Austin. He might hear you come crawling out of my vent. <laughs> uh, Bug the system and the group collective. Do that, and you'll earn your way to the next level. <laughs> okay, I did that... listen to him his episode with Joe Rogan again. I can't get enough. It's so funny. It is a, that is a trippy episode, man. It's so fucked up. I, I would love him to come back on, but I don't know if he ever will because they killed him. They killed they, Alex Jones. They uh, because I can't formulate my words, I have decided to grab a beer, and I'm going to open it oh. right here on the air for everybody to hear so I can get completely wasted while we talk. 
Because I feel like we're moving into a deeper level, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to talk about it without a little alcohol in my system. Fair enough. So uh, could, you, could you hear that train on your end? I heard your by? espresso machine, um, but I didn't hear the train. Okay, yeah, because the train was going by for about four minutes, and I oh, could, that's... like, see its subtle undulations in the sound bar. It was registering, but yeah, I'm glad it wasn't, wasn't too noticeable, because it gets loud, man. They're usually... Like during the daytime hours, um, it's kind of it's. I don't have not yet figured out the pattern, but one almost always comes by around twelve thirty a.m. and one almost always comes by around three thirty a.m. That is shitty. It's fine. <laughs> you have no idea how cheap this apartment is because of that freaking train. Well, good for you. I just paid my rent at this place in Austin, and I looked at my bank account and gasped. Yeah. Oh God! <laughs> the the yeah. the bill will be delivered, huh? Yeah, it will. And when this lease runs out, who knows? I might move out of the city and live somewhere cheaper. I don't know. I don't know. Magical things happen move when your podcast to Waco. gets famous. <laughs> I'm not going back to Waco. Fuck you. Dude, Here, you- I have an idea. I have an idea. Since since we both have our drinks, we should do a simultaneous sip. Yes. That's weird. No, it's but- not. <laughs> Okay. So, Weird flex, uh, but okay. <laughs> and our listeners can do it with us. I'd like to raise our glasses or beer bottles or what have you uh, and say a toast to James and his new marriage. Uh, I hope it doesn't... Uh, it, I hope it doesn't end with him burning down a crop field. I don't know. You haven't done a lot of toasts at weddings, have you? No, I haven't. Just the one. <laughs> Well, as so, as my as, as my old, uh, I was just going to make up a family member here, but I think it was actually my brother who said who who taught me when I was a a wee lad of about six, I think. Father, son, and Holy Ghost, who drinks the fastest gets the most. Ah, uh, another way of saying that is you snooze, you lose, but it's way lamer. I would like to raise our glasses to James. Happy Christmas. <laughs> And a most fruitful marriage. Yes. Sip with me, if you will. Perfect. Duly sipped. Okay, so... Oh, God, that's a strong beer. Jesus Christ. Okay. Mm. I want to get started again, because we were... We've been talking about myths this whole time, and I feel like uh, probably we've said myth to the point where people are going to start noticing and be like, every time they say myth, they're going to notice it, so... um, Let's keep talking about myth, shall we? I so, guess. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the one of the things we were getting at there at at the end before we before we took our little coffee and beer break um, was the not just the cultural significance of myth, but sort of the individual significance of myth. And one of the things that I think about a lot uh, is the concept of the perversion of myths. Because, uh, you know, the people who know me know I rant a lot about movies and I barely go to them anymore uh, because I can't stand them. And the reason is, is I think that they're, they're ignoring the structure but also fundamentally corrupting the stories that we hold dear. Uh, and I'm not going to say names, but everyone knows what I'm talking about. I was wondering if, if there's another example outside of, you know, what I'm talking about of something like a perversion of a local myth for a different cause. The only thing I can think of right off the bat is uh, 
Oh shit, the Battle on the Ice. Who was that king? Alexander Nevsky. Ah, um, yes, yeah. Alexander Nevsky's story being sort of taken and a little bit remodeled, a little bit extra paint, maybe remove some of the sense. And there you have uh, Alexander Nevsky, the Soviet propaganda film that Stalin supported from beginning to end, decided it was his favorite film and watched it every day until he died, which isn't true, that last part. But it was a propaganda film based off of a cultural myth uh, known as Alexander Nevsky. And that I would, cons- that I would consider to be a perversion of, of myth for a purpose other than uh, the original, you know, adventurer and, you know, against the evil forces and all that good stuff. Uh, I don't know. What do you think about that? Is it possible to be to pervert a myth? Well, I mean, suppose one depends on what one means by pervert exactly, um, hmm. since that is you know sort of subjective, based on whether one views it you know something as a development versus versus a perversion. But it's certainly possible for myths to be sort of radically, sort of twisted and modified and dare I say it, appropriated um, for a use which was very, very different uh, from that which gave rise to them. I mean, an example I'm thinking of is, have you ever heard of uh, Roman Un- uh, von Ungarn-Sternberg? No. Okay, so he's one of the weirdest people in history, and honestly, the fact that you have not had him on the show is a goddamn disgrace, and you should be ashamed. Cool. Um, he was a uh, Russian, a white army general in the Russian Civil War. Um, he was a cavalry commander and ended up way over in the east, so sort of took control of Mongolia and set himself up there as more or less the Khan and ended up actually um, being viewed as the uh, reincarnation of a um, sort of Asiatic uh, god of war. Hmm. And just, he ruled for uh, quite a while, actually. Um, like, so several, several years before event- eventually he was uh, captured and killed um, by the Red Army. But, uh, yeah, the, you know, this is, a, uh, this is a, Rus- a Russian nobleman who just sort of embraces a completely different cultural narrative in Mongolia and is able to use it to become this, uh, this sort of warlord. Well, damn. That's a really interesting example. Yeah, he's a he's crazy. You you should look him up because like uh, my favorite thing about him, well, one of my favorite things about him, he had a great mustache, but that that's a that's a story for another time. Um, is when he was being when he was being uh, when he was being killed, he took off his um, I believe it was the Saint George's Cross. It was ever whatever the highest uh, military decoration in the Russian Empire was, and he ate it because he said he refused to allow filthy communist hands to touch it. And so before they killed him, he ate it so they would not touch it. Oh, shit. <laughs> wow. Well, see, that's, that is, that is very, a very interesting story. And I'm trying to think of, of other examples, but the concept of taking a cultural story, something that's sort of, uh, you know, very much in, in the heart of a culture and turning it into something that is, say, an arm of your own power... Uh, or putting it towards your own uses, you know, my, my thought would be that that is a, that depending on the kind of story, 
Um, that's what I'm talking about when I talk about a perversion of myth. Uh, so, like, the hero's journey, for example, is, is basically like, all right, life's fine. You know, that's the ordinary world, okay? You're, you're in your tribe, you're in your house, you're in your, on your planet, like in Star Wars or whatever, and things are going along, but they're not quite right. Well, all you have to do is make a sacrifice, take some risks, go out there, uh, face three challenges in a three-act structure. Uh, there's, there's three major challenges in the second act. Um, and then at the end of the second act, you fucking die, uh, just as Harry Potter does. Uh, and, and uh, you know, well, a lot of characters in a lot of movies, they have sort of a death and resurrection scene. Spoiler Harry Potter alert. What? <laughs> Spoiler alert. Well, well, you, you, you go out there and you die, and then you come back to life uh, through the power of love or something like that. Some, some higher order uh, virtue, you might say. And then you incorporate what you learned on your adventure, but also sort of return to the beginning and remember where you came from. Right? And so that's a, that's a narrative structure in service of, a, of typically a higher virtue. And what's interesting to me is that it's really hard to substitute the higher virtue with something material um, or something any, anything lower than an actual virtue. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, abso- absolutely. Um, there are um, sort of inherent restrictions upon what makes a good myth. And, yeah, you can't just sort of mix, mix and match pieces. And ultimately you are... Even if you're engaged in a process of sort of myth making, trying to build it from the ground up, some things just don't work, and you are still going to be constrained by your own sort of inheritance and patrimony of myths and stories. Well, I, I, I'm even thinking of like a counterexample. Like, you know, I'm talking about material wealth and that sort of thing, and there are movies and, and stories like the one I'm thinking of right now is Ocean's Eleven, right? He's going after the money that this guy has in the casino. Uh, and the whole story is about the bank heist and the robbery and that sort of thing. Um, but what's interesting is that the B-plot with his ex-wife or whatever, with uh, Danny Ocean's ex-wife, you know, at first it's like he's not interested in that. He doesn't want to have anything to do with her. He's happy to see her, but, you know, I'm you know, robbing this guy. i got other things to do. But even at the end of the story, it's like he, he gets the money, but he still goes back for her, right? He sets things straight for her. So it's sort of like the higher order virtue is still there, even though Danny Ocean is something like an antihero, right? He's a robber. He's a thief. He shouldn't be doing what he's he's doing according to you know the law and you know cultural norms and that sort of thing. But in the end, he's still sort of captivated by something like love, and I think that's irreplaceable. If at the end he just got the money and then was like you know fuck you Tess and didn't you know go back to her or set anything right or there was no conclusion there. I think the movie would be fundamentally incomplete, right? Yeah, no, no, abs- absolutely, absolutely. Um, so even like, I mean, okay, <clears throat> you and I both know one of your favorite movies, if not your favorite movie of all time, is John Wick, right? It's, uh, it's. I can neither right? confirm nor deny the allegation. <laughs> so, I can neither confirm I, nor deny that I may have watched that within the last week again. <laughs> well... But think about it. Okay, well, how about you describe it to me, all right? How about you tell me what it's actually about? Because it's not really about killing guys and being a badass, even though that's a major part of it. What's it actually about? What's the core virtue? I mean, I would say that the the core virtue is the sort of warrior ethos of protecting that which has been entrusted to you, 
and protecting the phys- the physical manifestations of your own social bonds. Even if in the case of John Wick, his wife's dead, and so she's you know technically not there anymore. But nevertheless, the dog, which has been entrusted to his care, represents the social bond. And, you know, I use social not in sort of an impersonal sense, just as a way of talking about things between people, but the bond between him and his wife and his role as a protector and a guardian of his wife extends to that dog she gave him. And Mm. so that's why when this sort of cosmic injustice is done, it has to be righted because it's not really, you know, as much as we like thinking, it's not really about the dog. Right. I mean, it's a little bit about the dog, but... Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a cute, fluffy puppy, and, you know, it, it, it gets uh, offed at the beginning. And uh, that's the, the main driver for the story, because it sort of, like, makes John Wick dig down deep inside himself and find the thing he's hidden away, right? His warrior ethos, as you might say. Um, and he goes back to all his old ways, but he doesn't, at the end, sort of... Uh, he... he Returns to his old ways, but he brings with him the thing he learned about having a relationship with his wife. The he combines the um, the warrior ethos right with the capacity for uh, love, which is essentially a form of surrender. Uh, which is so interesting to me because so many. Okay, all right, I'm about to shit on Disney. Everybody, get ready. All right, get ready. Okay. None, well, not none, but most of the new Disney stories don't have love stories, and they don't have characters that care about anything, which I don't get why, but that's just what they're doing, so whatever. Uh, But they forget that a character has to have a fundamental weakness, and a weakness it may be to be in love with somebody, or to say fall for somebody, or to care about something bigger than yourself, right? And they, I think, I think these, uh, the new story writers these days, for some reason, have a problem with main characters having weaknesses that aren't, like, kind of smarmy. You know what I mean? Like, um, I, I don't know what I'm trying to get at here, but I think the ma- a main problem is, like, a character is incomplete without being susceptible to something, no matter how badass they are. Like, John Wick is still susceptible to his love for his wife, manifested in this dog, right? And he's willing to defend it even after her death. Which is something higher, right? It, it transcends it transcends death itself and becomes a a bigger uh, fight than just the damn dog, right? This is about honor and this is about loyalty and this is about love, right? Um, but of course, you may have a different translation or a uh, different uh, interpretation of that because I have seen the movie approximately three times, not one hundred and fifty thousand. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm I'm tracking I'm tracking with you. Yeah, I think you're. Uh... I think your analysis is spot on, because um, yeah, on the one hand, like, and that's 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 another, that's another thing about myths is that they generally register on more than one level um, in the way John Wick does. On the one hand, it's a very I think well made movie. It's enjoyable to watch because it's well done. It um, is a pleasing story because it's a story of a wrong being righted. But there's multiple levels because, yeah, it's not just they killed the dog, he kills them, which that's something we can probably already feel good about. But like Mm. you said, there's a lot more at play there. And that's the thing about myths. Yeah, myths generally don't just have sort of one takeaway. The takeaway from a myth depends a lot on the 
circumstances one finds oneself in at which time one has recourse to the myth. Like, you know, a myth about a, a great war between your city and another city is going to be looked at differently depending on what the current power balance between your two cities is. Yeah. Well, I, I just thought of something interesting, which is sort of sort of vaguely related. Um, but I remember the beginning of the, the Princess Bride. Have you ever seen it? Many, many years ago. Okay, I love that fucking movie. It's perfect. But the way it starts out is there's this kid who's sick in bed and his grandpa comes in and the kid's playing video games. He's like, ah, get out, grandpa. I don't want to deal with your shit. And he's like, well, I got a story to read to you. And the kid goes, oh, it's not a kissing story, is it? And he goes, oh, no, it's about pirates and there's sword fights and there's, there's adventure and all that shit. And the kid's like, okay, I'll watch it. But the story's still about love, right? It's a love story fundamentally. But the, the, um, the, the uh, trappings of it are, here's an action movie with lots of pirates and lots of dangerous things happening. And still the moral is love, right? The, not the moral, but the, the core uh, component, the core uh, virtue is love itself. And you can mix those sorts of things together, right? You can have a value of love, which is transcendent. We all sort of understand what, what love is, uh, unless, unless we are very, very sad people indeed. But, you know, you can watch a movie like that and learn about what, you know, what true love is and still get all the action. And I think what's interesting about modern-day Hollywood movies, and even you could even compare it to, like, uh, really shitty romance novels and, and, like, crappy action movies... It's like, yeah, there are people out there who just watch it for the exploding shit. But, but, if they're watching, you know, all of that, all of that stuff going on, and they can also feel a sense of completion at the end of the story, a sense of having grown a little bit by learning about it, you know, you know, uh, explosions and, and whatnot aside, that's sort of the goal of, of story, in my opinion. It's to teach you about something higher through the trappings of something say more attractive but lower right yeah no absolutely it's the yeah the con the sort of the literal content of a myth is less important generally than sort of what is conveyed subtextually you know Mm -hmm. for example like george washington the cherry tree is a myth that is of interest to more people than that small segment of the population currently engaged in uh you know cherry orcharding right (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Um, no offense to any listeners who may currently be engaged in such pursuits. <laughs> but you really? don't own this story. <laughs> it's, it's not yours. Uh, well, and that's the other thing is like a very shallow analysis of something like John Wick would be, oh, it's just a loud action movie with lots of murder and death and guns and gore and, you know, well choreographed fight scenes, but no internal conflict with John Wick. It's like, well... That's a really shallow analysis of it. If you really look at it deeply, you understand that the reason that everyone wants to see John Wick win is that he fucking loves his wife. And that's a good thing, right? I mean, but anyway, so <clears throat> a fundamental weakness in a, in, a, in a main character in a story is necessary for a story to be, you know, as actually successful. If you have characters going around who don't have any weaknesses and yeah, say don't um, have a... Wait a minute, you, you cut out there for about five seconds with no sound. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'll still be recorded, but it'll just, everyone will hear that I made a mistake, or that we had a uh, had a flaw. I'm not even going to mark it. It's fine. Okay. Um, I'm just, yeah. Sorry about that. 
Yeah. So whatever uh, you said, I cannot respond to. <laughs> well, I was I was just saying that, um, like the core value of a story is essentially a character's main weakness, and a weakness is not necessarily like, you know, oh god, I I I'm afraid of of candy because I always eat too much. It's like that could be a good weakness, but there's always something beneath beneath it, right? Well, why are you afraid of the candy? You know, why do you eat too much? What's really going on there? Well, ah, that's we're the digging into the childhood trauma. I see. Well, I don't think it's always that simple. I think people like to pretend like it's always childhood trauma, but they're not really looking at it uh, at the highest level of analysis, you might say. I see we've uh, transitioned from Jung to Freud now. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm an armchair psychologist. I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. But you see what I'm saying? Yeah, no, no, I, absolutely. So I guess... I guess you know, we're, we're getting into an hour and ten here, and I'd like to end at about an hour and a half, so we probably need to, to frame this for an ending here. Um, and I, I would like to tackle a large question, if we can, since we have, you know, about, about 15, 20 minutes left to talk. Um, I, just, I just wonder what you think, if I ask the question, is it possible to have a culture without a mythological structure? Has it, I mean, it has been tried... But it always seems to be, like, pushed aside. You know, they realize that they need myths, like we talked about with uh, Stalin and Mao. Um, but if you wanted to have a purely myth-free society, would it be possible? Um, I would answer that with a um, absolutely emphatic no. Mm. It's simply... Myths, as I said, like, they are a way for people to negotiate the conflict between ideals and reality but i don't like to think of them as sort of a crutch they're more like a leg like mm. a leg allows a human having a second leg allows a human being to walk it's a very helpful tool but it's not something extra it's kind of built in well it actually mm. not kind it literally is built in um no offense to any one-legged listeners but <laughs> so I think that everybody is always going to have a mythic framework of some kind to work with because human society simply doesn't exist without that. Because if you don't have some kind of mythic framework and you then truly would be a, a nihilist and the portion of people which I think are mentally capable of even being nihilists is just astronomically tiny – and beyond that, if everyone was a nihilist, society literally couldn't function. It would literally just cease to exist. Hmm. Like That's a bold if, claim. I wonder what your justification is for that. Because if everyone is a nihilist, there is no value in human relationships, in harmony, in order, in essentially the things that mankind has used to ward off the chaos and allow humanity to endure. If everybody is truly nihilist and is simply doing their nihilistic thing, they're not going to have families, they're not going to have relationships, they're not going to have any sense of justice or beauty or decency. They will all simply exist in their own sort of self-imposed hell until they die. You can't have a society of nihilists because a society is not nihil. It's not nothing. It's something. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting point. I actually watched a video a while back by. Have you ever watched any videos by Kurtzgestadt? Uh no, I haven't. Okay, they're these they're they're wonderful. They're these little animated videos about various topics like science and 
and history and, uh, you know, just weird. It's a little bit like Vsauce, but they're animated and narrated by a British guy, so they seem more complicated or whatever. There's a video on there that I really, like, the core of my, my I guess, conscience rejected, which was the, the uh, outlying, outlining of their, uh, their philosophy as a team, which was optimistic nihilism, which is that they don't think anything matters, but they think there are things worth doing nonetheless. And I thought that that was, one, absurd, uh, and two, really, really mealy-mouthed. I thought it was so lame um, that they were optimistic nihilists. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Have you ever heard of an optimistic nihilist? I have nihilist? never heard of that, but... I place about as much credence as that in that as I would in, you know, somebody saying it's it's not you, it's me. It's just, it's ridiculous. <laughs> that is such a thinly veiled attempt to gloss over your own intellectual inconsistencies. Now that's 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 stunning. That's stunning. Yeah. So if you look at people who claim to have you know abandoned superstition and myth, religion which as I said is a type of myth or what have you, they've simply substituted one idol for another. They still use categories and ideas which they've garnered from their mythic inheritance. They've usually tweaked the meaning to sort of serve their own ends. But like, you know, for example, love. You see people talk about love with the implicit understanding that it's a good thing. But they also claim to, you know, be nihilists of you know or not have a moral framework or what have you but there's no philosophical justification for love being a good thing if you don't have a moral framework in which it's a good thing a moral framework you know such as christian theology or what have you you simply take the ideas that you've inherited you change them around and then you act like they're different and they're your own thing and you're not indebted to the past which is nonsense it reminds me of a a line from a wonderful short short story uh, by H.P. Lovecraft called The Silver Key, um, where the, the main character's distaste for his contemporary society is being uh, described, and he's already, ab- he's already abandoned his uh, religious upbringing and tried sort of going and participating in, in a sort of secular, a-religious society, but he finds it even worse uh, because this, this is a great quote. Uh, talking about this society, their champions tried to gild brute impulse with a sacredness stripped from the idols they had discarded. Hmm. They haven't gotten rid of the idols. They've so they've still taken, you know, the the sacredness. They've taken this idea that some things are good and some things are just. And in many cases, they've taken the name of those things too. Things like justice, love, you know, fairness, what have you. And they've just set that up in place of. An older idol. People are always going to have myths. It simply is not a. It's not really an option to live without myths. Everybody has them. Everybody has this this framework with which they understand the world. Because that's really what myth is. It's the framework by which we understand the world and our place in it and our relationship to other people within the world. So, feel free to challenge me on this. Um, one, I can hear our Sam Harris fans screaming at you. Uh, I don't have a god, and I don't have a mythological structure. All of it's bullshit, and you just saying that my values are mythological is just, you know, you bullshitting. Um, I can hear that already, and I, but I, I want to I press forward a tiny bit. Um, the... <clears throat> how do I put this? Um, 
So is it perhaps, maybe, the highest position is not, my myth is right, because I learned it from my parents, and it's not, no myth is right, because all of them are bullshit, is perhaps the highest position to select the myths that you value the highest and say select the stories that elevate you and put you on a, a proper path in life um, is that the most elevated position to realize that hey it is just a myth but it's also not just a myth the way that you say a myth is a, dis a myth, you know a, a structure of myth can be a decision say you pick um, the mythology that uh, you know is, is still present at least in modern day China of the um, the savior Mao and that sort of thing and we have alternative facts you might say about what went wrong but there are still people there who really do believe that Mao was uh, you know a god on earth the savior and it, it runs very deep and is perhaps the the well what I'm what I'm getting I'm back to my original question but is it perhaps the highest position to select what mythological structure you want to believe based on the values that you think are the highest and that's an interesting question because the I'm not. I'm not sure if the just the, the very idea of sort of choosing one's myths is even really possible. Mm. I think myths are generally something that you know we receive, we inherit, we sort of breathe in, and while certainly the sort of conscious utilization and shaping of myth is a process people engage in, I don't know if one can ever really sort of choose one's own one's own myths i don't know if humans really have that agency to just completely sort of you know the human psyche is isn't exactly like a hard drive where you can just put you you can choose your partitions you can you know allot your files and whatnot i don't know if we can ever really be truly in control of our myths um because you look, you know, and you look at those societies which really do try to control myth, things like China, God building in the Soviet Union, as you mentioned, or like North Korea, where I believe, uh, you know, uh, Kim Il Sun is still technically the head of state because he is reigning in all of time and eternity. And they yeah. have a whole framework of myth about him, which they've imposed. And I don't necessarily, I don't really think that truly man made imposed structures of myth are lasting and um, really effective in the long run as long as without physical coercion, more or less, like, you know, those said societies we've mentioned. Right. So perhaps, you know, selecting your myths is only half of it. Perhaps... Now, selecting what myths one sort of wants to have recourse to in a given situation. Now, that, absolutely. I don't think one can really select what one's pantheon of myths is, but you can select which myths you are going to sort of... Uh, explicitly or implicitly draw upon at any given mm. time so it could also be and now i'm just now i'm just spitballing but it could also be that instead of selecting your myths from a like a large menu of cultural myths it might just be sort of discovering what myths uh speak to you the most maybe um the ones that you find to be uh, say well i don't want to sound like a utilitarian but ones that you say find the most use out of, but also uh, say the ones that elevate you more. Because I think if you believe in, in the myth of Kim Il-sung, you're going to have a very, essentially very, very small worldview about what is divine and what is not. 
Stop insulting my religion, Aaron. <laughs> I wouldn't dream of it. You know that. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. I guess the way the way I like to envision it is kind of it's buffet versus family style. Myths aren't all like set out over on the buffet, and you get to go choose the ones you want, and you bring it back to your table and you eat it. It's more like family style. They're all on the table, and you may choose to be taking larger or smaller helpings of these all these things that are on the table or even trying to avoid it, which until, you know, your mother or in this case, your sort of your social context and upbringing forces you to try at least a little bit of the sweet potato salad. Um, <laughs> I think the myths are all on the table and we have some agency in choosing which ones we're really going to sort of try to be drawing upon and which ones we're going to try to be minimizing. But they're on the table whether we want them there or not. Hmm. I'm looking at you, sweet potatoes. <laughs> yeah, and it's almost, it's kind of interesting because even if you take that analogy a little bit farther, um, <clears throat> you know, it's it's easy to say, oh, I found commonality between the sweet potato salad and the regular potato salad. They're both composed of, you know, potatoes. But the sweet potatoes are different from the regular potatoes, and the similarities sort of end there, right? Sure. Um, so it's like even if we found something sort of universal about all the myths, it's almost like we're saying all the dishes on the table are food, and you can eat all of them for nourishment. But the reality is, if you eat too much of one or another, you're going to get sick, right? Yeah, and some are sort of – some are more central to – a worldview than others for example thanksgiving dinner like the turkey you can pretty much count on everyone's going to have the turkey right so i think like the, the turkey you know is a very widely held societal myth that's that's something that more or less everyone's going to understand everyone's going to implicitly sort of acknowledge and give reverence to so the turkey is something like you know the idea of love or justice or something like that or that you know zeus is reigning in olympus the turkey is something everybody everybody more or less is having others you know are more limited they're more particular they might not be equally appealing to everyone um they're not the you know they're not as big a deal and i think myths are the same way some myths really do sort of pervade a society at all levels others are a little bit more localized hmm yeah, I think that's an I think that's an important point, and it's also it's also worth saying <clears throat> that it's not like we have all this shit figured out. Some, well, I mean, I think obviously myths developed within particular cultures are going to be better for particular cultures uh, because they, there's a there's a longer history, say, right? Uh, now you're making me think of uh, Silence. You remember uh, that movie? By Martin Scorsese, based on the book by Shusake Endo. Oh yeah, yes, yes. Yeah, and the whole the whole point of that one was, um, well, I, I won't tell spoil the whole story. It's a great book. You should all read it right now. Get it. Silence by Shusaku Shusake Endo. Endo. Just remember that. It's a and one of, one of the things that's said constantly in it is that Christianity cannot take root in Tokyo or not Tokyo but Japan as a whole. Uh, because it just it does not grow here and it, it one it's a dialogue between that and the idea that it, you know that yeah you know, <laughs> just you watch it fucking can right um but that is an interesting idea of uh say 
one culture being more uh, maybe familiar or more hospitable to a certain brand of myth. But I don't know. I'm spitballing again. Yeah, no, no, abs- absolutely. It's like we like we talked about with the with the roof. Um, you know, all houses are going to have roofs, but the roofs are going to look different, be composed differently, be put, you know, be constructed differently and serve different functions in different societies. And yeah, myths are the same way. I there's I don't think there's any such thing as a truly universal myth. Hmm. And yet there's the book the hero with a thousand faces in which Joseph Campbell tries to make the case that there is something like a universal myth. Um, which, hey, I think you've offered some good criticisms of that idea, but I still like the book, and you should all read it because it is super, super good and super interesting. And also, if nothing else, you'll learn about all kinds of different stories from all over the world. So that's my recommendation. Yeah, no, I, I second that. I, I like the book very much, even if I don't necessarily agree with everything in it. So you've, you've got my thumbs up for whatever the hell that's Just wait for. a second. Are you saying you can read something you don't completely agree with and still like it? Cue dramatic music. Yes, you can. Oh my god. Hey, this was really fun. We should do this again. Yeah, hell yeah. Yeah. And uh, to the listeners, I hope you enjoyed it. Like, uh, one of the biggest crossovers that we come into in history is the combination of history, actual history, as recorded, as we know, and uh, the difference, therefore, uh, there, uh, between history and myth. And, and uh, one, how they complement each other, but two, how they, they also differ. And they differ in... in uh, I guess utility as well, because you can know a lot of history and you can know a lot of facts, but if you don't understand the why, you're missing. I would say seventy-five percent of the picture at least. <laughs> what about you, George? What do you think? Yeah, no, absolutely, no, absolutely. It's like you can look at a, you know, beautifully constructed temple, and you can appreciate it and think, "Wow, that's really, really cool." But you don't necessarily know just from looking at it how it's actually constructed. And oftentimes when you learn about how it's really constructed, it becomes even more amazing when you learn the sort of the careful, complex processes that went into building it. You get a much fuller understanding and appreciation of it than if you just looked at it. Incredible. Looking at it's still nice. Looking at it's cool. But you don't really understand it until you really dig deep into it. It's like the certain Greek temples where the columns that are on the corners are actually not quite straight to account for a uh, phenomenon with human vision where if they were quite straight, they would actually appear slightly curved because of your field of vision. And so the columns are actually slightly curved to offset that so it appears straight. So you look at it, you think, wow, those are some really nice straight columns, and you appreciate them, and that's nice. But then you learn about, wow, all this background that gives me a much fuller appreciation of it and a much better understanding of what I'm looking at. Yeah. And I think that's a, I think that's definitely a good case for observing myth, not through the non-human objective lens, but through the human human lens. Because there's something else to it that you can't get unless you take into account the human element. Which I can't remember what company was talking about the human element, but I just remember rolling my eyes <laughs> so, so thoroughly. 
You remember those ads? Uh, blessedly, I'm in ignorance. Ah, uh, yes, bless you indeed. Well, <clears throat> we are all ignorant on this blessed day. <laughs> well, that's that's the theme of the podcast: our ignorance. So uh, you fit right in. <laughs> Well, thank you. I just want to thank you for uh, having me on today, Aaron. I, I enjoyed this. And, um, yeah, please send any hate mail or death threats to Aaron because I don't give a fuck. <laughs> you can send hate threats and hate tweets and all that good shit at uh, WTADP Podcast on Twitter. Or you can contact us on SoundCloud, Patreon, whatever the fuck you want to do. Uh, we we uh, Oh, and Facebook. Definitely Facebook. Um, we encourage you to reach out. Say hello. Uh, if you like this episode, I'm really happy. If you didn't like it, sorry. James will be back next week. And, well, I say next week. Jesus or Christ. I never know. He? I never know with that guy. Um, he'll be back at some point. Until then, I'm hoping to put out some more of this kind of shit. Uh, and, you know, maybe even just me on the air sometimes. I don't know. That sounds kind of boring, but we'll try. Um, but yeah, yeah, so thanks. Everybody, keep looking into myth. Learn more about it. Learn how it affects you start to understand its power in society and mm-hmm. to quote our beloved Alex Jones <laughs> buck the system and the group collective do that <laughs> and you'll earn your way to the next level all right I got you to do it and he's crawling out of my vent right now so I gotta go <laughs> uh, yes feel free to contact us on WTADP podcast that's WTADP podcast on Twitter if you like the show feel free to support us uh, 50 bucks 20 bucks a uh, hundred million dollars would be super nice um, but Feel free to support us on Patreon. We just got a new one this week. And, uh, yeah, we continue to grow. And, hey, oh, hey, one other thing you can do uh, if you're if you're wanting to help the show but don't have the funds to do so, just share. Give us a like. Tell your friends. I mean, anything helps. Just say you listen to this wacky podcast where people talk about dead people. And with all that being said, I think I'll let the sound of George doing something with his trains play you out. <laughs> Weird flex, but okay. There's an old, old castle in Scotland And a strange love story to tell who lived in the castle and the laddie who fell neath her spell when they met the bagpipes were playing and the full moon shone overhead it was heaven they found there together and they vowed come the morning they'd wed the story grows weird for the lassie disappeared poor laddie he shed bitter tears the townspeople there said the castle had been fair for hundreds and hundreds of years but the lad still waits for his lassie all alone at their rendezvous by that old haunted And he dreams of the loved ones he knew And he dreams of the loved ones he knew